0: to episode 13 of the Greater European Talks. Today we are talking about news items across Western Europe and Atlantic, that includes, of course, North America, Canada, and all of the uh, bordering countries of the Atlantic. Today we have one of our new editors, Dale, from Canada. Do you want to say hello?
1: Hello, I'm Dale from Canada.
0: And one of our long-time editors and uh, speakers here, we have Jack. Hello, everyone. And of course, as always, myself speaking to you from this horrible microphone. Yes, there have been people who don't like me for it. I promise I'll upgrade eventually. So today we're going to be focusing uh, on three news items. So to begin with, Jack, I believe is going to be introducing a little bit about uh, quite a shocking news item that has not that has shockingly not made it that far about the uh, Russian interference of the Taliban to pay for the assassination of American soldiers. That's. That's a sentence I didn't think I'd be saying this year, I have to
2: admit. Right, yeah, so um, this is, uh, this is a, yeah, a it's an fine, interesting
0: take one. Take it away. I, I was going to introduce the other ones, Jack, but oh, uh, you please, may also take it don't. away. Um, so why don't you take it away, Jack? Go ahead.
2: Well, now I just feel rude. Uh, please introduce the other <laughs> stories. I, I don't want a reputation fine. on your podcast. And next,
0: I'm... And next day, we will be talking uh, a little bit about the US decision to pull troops out of Germany, where it has stationed some of the most troops in any country, actually, worldwide, and certainly in Europe. Um, and then finally, I'll be discussing a little bit about the French government's resignation. Um, the new Prime Minister, uh, who I have actually already fun, Jean Castex. Um, I hope I said that correctly. Um, and uh, his efforts to, well, lead the country in the stubborn times. Now, Jack, if you'd be so kind as to take it away.
2: Yeah, so I don't know how far that this new story has sort of permeated outside of the United States. Um, We were all talking before the record button that it seems that there's one big story in the U.S. and then another and then another and then another. Uh, We can hardly catch our breath. Uh, But this one was a big one. Um, A story broke on June 26th that uh, Russian special forces from the GRU, and in particular uh, Unit 29155, uh, had been offering Taliban bounties of up to or around $100,000 for each American casualty, as well as uh, casualties for sort of other NATO coalition troops stationed within Afghanistan. Um, this unit, the but the Unit 29155, sort of has its own reputation of um, anti-Western interference attempts. Um, They've been linked uh, sort of substantially or in part to some of the assassination attempts that have occurred across Europe, uh, as well as some of the more destabilizing efforts. Uh, And so what this story apparently, or what the intelligence apparently suggests from multiple sources in the U.S. government, from the CIA, uh, which sort of has a an emphasis on human intelligence. Uh, the National Security Agency, the NSA, uh, has looked at sort of the uh, more electronic, quote unquote, proof of this. Uh, you know, so it's sort of been a a collection of all the U.S. intelligence uh, agencies, and d- they haven't really found what a, a purpose might be. I'm, I'm trying to make sure that I have all of this right. Uh, of course, this is a a huge issue that. Uh, a f- sovereign nation, i.e., Russia, uh, an adversary of the United States, has been offering, sort of in a proxy, has been offering a financial award for the active killing of uh, U.S. and coalition troops, including uh, British troops as well. Sort of, the Americans and the Brits seem to be targeted more so than oh, any other. Yeah. yeah, yeah, more so than any other NATO country. Uh, but it's concerning. It is. It's all extremely concerning that, you know, the foreign policy of the administration, of the Russian administration is sort of, you know, escalates this ongoing sort of under the table, more subdued uh, tension between the United States and Russia. And I think on its face, the Russian payment for dead Western troops is a bad enough story But it sort of only gets worse in the way that it's handled here in the United States, Um, and I think that's extremely telling, not only for you know domestic politics in my own country, but sort of the standing of Americans uh, or the standing of America to other countries. Um, So I'll I'll touch upon that a little bit. Officials sort of informed the president; Uh, President Trump was made aware of this uh, in what believes to be February. Um, American intelligence. Uh, claims that they've known about this at least in part since January of uh, perhaps even 2019 and sort of utilized the entirety of 2019 to get more information before presenting it to the president sometime Mm -hmm. in February of 2020. Uh, The White House strongly denies that the president was orally briefed on this matter uh, and that it was instead included in the president's daily briefing, uh, the PDB, uh, which the president is not known for reading. Uh, I think that's a Pretty pretty important file uh, that one should read, Um, but the president, you know, just doesn't read it, and that's caused. This isn't the first time it's caused him trouble. Uh, A lot of officials within the White House have noted that the president is more engaged when something is directly presented to him. Though uh, levels of engagement definitely vary based on what he's sort of fixated with, uh, and is more interested in his re-election numbers and everything. Um, so what the response was of the United States, you know, prepared in lower channels within the State Department and then presented to the president was how to respond to this news reporting. You know, the president didn't take any action on uh, on it initially, didn't call out Russia, didn't do anything of the sort. So the State Department's response was to propose a number of retaliatory measures, um, likely focusing on some sort of highly like high-level diplomatic pressure, uh, whether that was sanctions or um, you know, giving the cold shoulder to Russia and sort of reigniting that mm-hmm. foreign policy uh, divide. Um, however, Trump has refused to act, and more importantly, he's actually been very soft on Russia. Uh, Secretary of State Mike, uh, Mike Pompeo is... I'm glad no- you can
0: remember the Secretary of State, considering you're taking the foreign uh, <laughs> the exam to get in there.
2: Yeah, at the, the lowest levels, Fully, we, we start at the ground level. Uh, but he <laughs> he's he sort of a hawkish policy on Russia. Uh, where Trump has historically been very soft. And as all of this has been unfolding, he's you know continued to cozy up to Putin, um, mm-hmm. I think most notably trying to get Russia back into the G8. Uh, and this has sort of launched Trump into his typical Trumpian defense of, well, I didn't know this information. This information wasn't presented to mm-hmm. me. This information wasn't included in my daily briefings. So it, it, it sort of underlies a transparency crisis and, a a sort of, uh, uh, what's the word sort of a, a fear of, of trust in the government, which is a A loss of trust. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's a, you know, what can be believed because you have the intelligence agency saying, no, we did present this, or we at least put it in writing, Mm. not only in the PDB, but in, in other sort of interagency, uh, Mm interagency material, uh, so, yeah. Sort of as the story is broke, are you going to jump in with a question? Or?
0: Oh, yeah. I was just if this okay.
2: Yeah.
0: I mean, how widespread has this been? as the investigation so so far in Afghanistan? Have they seen elsewhere as well, or is it a small case? I mean, the fact that it happens at all, of course, is an issue. Right. But is this, is this now one of Russia's new hybrid warfare, hybrid methods of warfare, or is there any understanding of that?
2: I, I, I liken it, and and I haven't seen any reporting sort of saying one way or the other, but they sort of liken it to Russia's overall uh, strategy of trying to undermine its adversaries and to undermine the West, uh, sort of, and, and connecting it to the dots of the meddling in the Ukrainian elections in 2015, 2016. Uh, of course, the uh, Russian interference in the 2016 election, uh, and this is just sort of seen as a wider Sort of a wider or a large a, a piece of a larger puzzle uh, that Afghanistan, you know, even in the Soviet days, is of Russian interest. Um, this comes at the heels or after the heels of the American Taliban ceasefire and peace negotiations. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the Taliban sort of officially claimed that they haven't fired upon American ah, troops. That's a good point. Yeah, mm-hmm. what
0: have, what has been Right response from the ground. Really.
2: Right, the, the the Taliban seems to say, you know, we're we're doing everything by the books. The, you know, the peace deal that they had. I mean, to to the extent that a non-state actor. Well,
0: we are committing war crimes by the books. I must say, uh, <laughs> right? We, we but, don't take Russian money to do so.
2: Exactly, and they're they're sort of trying to, you know, if it's even possible, take the moral high ground and say, you know, hey, remember in February? Oh, oh whoa, that's a uh, that's a fun one. <laughs> well, the moral they, they, high they, ground. <laughs> Again, it's it's all in context, but they, they claim that you know because they reached a, a ceasefire and a peace deal in February, that you know prevents them or or sort of they've given their word that they won't commit, um, you know, you know they they won't yeah. they won't target American troops, then they're not going to. Um, the coronavirus is also sort of has an aspect of this. Um, American activity has pretty much been remained on their bases, so American troops aren't going out outside of the walls of their bases to do community outreach or patrols uh, or whatever it is they do sort of on Mm -hmm. off base on the ground, uh, which again, limits their exposure to, you know, Taliban or some other mercenary group looking for, you know, a hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. And sort of as each day, the stories, you know, from the, the 26th of June to now every day, there's a new part of the puzzle that's revealed. Uh, it looks like that about in 2019 20 Americans were killed uh in total in Afghanistan which is just heartbreaking uh-huh. at any number um of but course, they yeah. they've sort of the pentagon and the intelligence agencies have narrowed not narrowed it down but are interested in the deaths of three individuals um who were killed in a truck bomb sometime uh-huh. in uh, i don't have the exact date but sometime in 2019 uh, that they think they can link the deaths of, I believe it was two Marines uh, and a member of the army, that they can use financial data between a GRU-linked like bank account with a Taliban-linked uh-huh. account through this okay. Afghani middleman okay. who has since fled the country and is now likely in Russia, uh, as well as uh, they've been able to raid certain Taliban compounds and have discovered large uh-huh. amounts of cash. You know the Taliban isn't necessarily known for keeping handfuls of cash around uh especially mm-hmm. a large troves yep. uh, which kind of points to you know maybe there's more maybe the intelligence agencies are onto something um and they've been able mm-hmm. to kind of connect all these dots to you know hurl this accusation that russian g r u units are behind American bounties um I see. I of course see. the Trump administration doesn't like this um you know, one, it makes the American president look extremely weak. Um, It's just a whole, and the denials make it even worse. Uh, So I think today Mm -hmm. a memo was sent around, or maybe it was yesterday, was sent around saying, yeah, you know, the intelligence agencies can sort of somewhat confirm Russian involvement, that that part of the puzzle is sort of, it's, it's a constant. However, you know, they're claiming that the accuracy of the initial intelligence reports are sort of, medium, accurate at best, which kind of Mm -hmm. poses its its own dangers of making this issue a political issue that, you know, it it turns into a red or blue issue in terms of, you know, and you have the 2020 election coming up. So, you know, the next steps are going to be extremely perilous. You already have the presumptive Democratic presidential nominee sort of out on the attack uh, and, you know, other Democratic candidates. And to some extent, I think you'll see moderate Republicans as well of you know, calling this a, a gross uh, dereliction of duty from the mm-hmm. American president, who is the commander in chief, the highest yep. officer. So I think moving forward, it's it's going to be very interesting to watch to see that this to see if this issue becomes political, um, mm-hmm. because it it shouldn't. It should be about how can the American government, how can the British government, how can NATO in general ensure that its troops are protected to carry out, you know, stabilizing missions.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see. Yeah,
0: it's quite an interesting one. Um, I guess, Dale, is there any kind of question or comment you want to you want to add to it?
1: Um, I just think it's really interesting to view any, um, any outward and direct action of the U.S. president, and especially on a topic like this, which whenever you're involving the military and the troops, you really have a lot of emotional connection from from the public and right. actions that may put troops in danger are not protecting them the way I feel that um, the administration of the United States wishes to just claim that they're really, they look after their troops and their troops are the heroes. And if it's mm-hmm. seen that the United States is not taking proper care of their troops or not taking care to mitigate mitigate risks, um, mm. that'll just have implications on the, the election and um, yeah. Anything we see, especially over this summer, is going to have big impacts on voter turnout and voter
2: decisions. Right. And you've, you've seen this president attack, you know, demonstrators who kneel during the national anthem or, you know, burn the flag, which is legal within the United States. Uh, the Supreme Court the Vietnam War uh, establishes that it is protected yeah, by the First but Amendment. Like it. uh, but it, it's very interesting that when push comes to shove, you know, talk is easy. You know, support the troops. Don't kneel for the the national anthem. But when it comes to why are you not doing anything about actual harm towards American troops? I I think it's important to note that you know, in war, in conflict, casualties are inevitable. You know, it's just sort of it's of course it's, it's 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 a reality of war. But I think when a when a main adversary is active, a non-involved main ad- adversary is looking to, you know, put American troops in harm way and, and sort of going out of their way to do so. I mean, the, the Afghan government and the US government have long accused Russia of funneling small arms and, mm-hmm. and sort of... To the Taliban, yeah. Right, and sort of like <laughs> operational I mean, they, they, they have
0: been since As... 1960s. The right, Taliban. That's it's, yeah. it's not
2: something new. It, it's sort of a reality of the the conflict that's been going on there, uh, you know, sort of post-colonialism and everything. But this is this is a new aspect, and a, a dangerous aspect, nevertheless.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. Yeah. So, next, also related to the US military for that matter, um, although a little more focused in Europe. Dale, do you want to just briefly introduce a little bit about the topic? Um, sure. And then we'll open up the, the discussion.
1: Uh, yeah. Um, so I just wanted to talk today about the... Um, The proposal of the United States to remove approximately um, 9,500 soldiers out of their German base. Um, This is definitely one of their largest bases in the region and a base that's um, incredibly important for their interests in uh, Africa and uh, the Middle East, especially. Um, This isn't an action that's been necessarily. The United States has not confirmed that they're 100% going to follow through with it, but it's something Mm. that has caused um, a lot of. Discussion among the EU, especially among NATO members, as the United States is accusing Germany of not contributing enough to NATO in terms of financial. And this comes from um, a principle that NATO would like by 2024 for all of its members to be contributing 2% of their GDP to defence. This, of course, is only met currently by, I believe, nine states, and that's only been in the last two years, that yeah. like six and of that's them. An,
0: that's an upgrade already. I think even last year, only four had it.
1: Exactly. It's it's very... And this, the large states such as like Canada, Spain, France um, are not meeting this threshold. Um, Germany hits it about 1.3%, but on the USA's defense, they are spending 3.4% on their, their defense budget, which... Um, we're not here to discuss how much you should be spending on a defense budget.
2: It's a (laughs) ridiculously large budget.
1: Exactly. So, of course, they're very high. Some may argue that um, budgets in the less than 1% and 1% are too low, but that's, um, especially in this conflict, I really, there's just a lot of evidence that there's external matters involved. And the U.S. is using this, continued and um, almost tired out rhetoric that they are upset about the defense spending of other NATO states. But again, this is a goal that's looking to be met by 2024. And there's been um, just many other German US political issues over the last little bit. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, I seem to remember there was a a meeting Pompeo was going to go to Berlin that was cancelled. Yeah. there are issues with Donald Trump calling Merkel a, uh, I think it was a stupid, a stupid woman. No, or stupid like idiot that. or something
2: like that.
1: Something like that. <laughs> yeah.
0: Which from someone with a PhD, uh, which she has.
2: Wait, you're going to undercredit Trump University?
1: <laughs>
0: Come on. Uh, I'm not going to undercredit Trump University itself, but <laughs> I think the lawsuits do. Perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway,
1: please continue though. Yeah, we had um, Merkel specifically refusing to attend a, a recently planned G7 summit in Washington, mm-hmm. um, which, if I'm correct, didn't actually go through. But it was her. She was one of the first to come out and say, I'm not coming. Mm-hmm. And this yeah. really just did not make the United States very happy about that. Um, and. Even with that, it's again with the election, a lot of people are criticizing the United States of even really pushing for this event to happen as a photo op for the United States president to see, be seen as a leader in bringing the world, troops. the economy back to um, after Corona. And yeah, with the troops, in terms of bringing your troops home, just like with the other thing, it's something that the United States really values is the looking after of their troops. So for the United States to be like, hey, we're bringing 10,000 troops home. That looks really good, especially for his election numbers. Um, but yeah. aside from that specifically, we see there was a, Go there's on. a pipeline, um, the pipeline that's bringing oil between this. Nord is, this Stream is a, 2. Yes, yeah. exactly. Is just been a really big conflict between the two causing sanctions um, against the company itself. But mm-hmm. um, this pipeline is uh, Nord Stream 2 is going to be able to bring oil into Germany, which will reduce Germans' dependence on the United States for oil and obviously open up a market with Russia. And the United States isn't happy about this. So
2: mm-hmm.
1: I feel that a lot of the use for the um, the NATO defense, of course, is something the United States would like to continue to push for the 2%. But um, there's a lot of conflict between the United States and Germany right now that are definitely contributing to this, this pullout of numbers.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's interesting because since NATO's creation, the US has always been saying Europe should take more, and Europe should take more. That's I, the US does, of course, contribute of course. far, far more than the the European allies. But to make such an overt decision that has such clear military implications, of course, with just a small it shows it show it's almost the pinnacle of kind of short short term thinking really.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um and what do you think the reaction to from other countries is, maybe not Germany or not NATO?
1: Yeah, we've seen um the United States having discussions with uh France about um, Merkel's actions in regards to the uh G seven summit in Washington, how um and France in in what I understood was fairly in likeness to the United States. Um that being said, this base in, in Germany is a uh, is a uh, starting and stopover point for and a supplier for the French forces in Mali. And mm-hmm. um, yeah. pulling out support in Germany is just going to only reduce that. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. And do you think Russia also sees it as oh, um, kind of a s- sign for them succeeding?
1: Yeah, <laughs> Russia definitely will view this as a win. And... Uh, Poland's also um, established that they see this as a win in terms of they're hoping that if the United States is pulling out of Germany, maybe they'll move into Poland. Increase- mm-hmm. And like, the Baltic security situation right now is something that's definitely we're going to see um, as an issue in the next year or so. And yeah. Poland is getting nervous about the, the growing Russian influence. And I think that Poland sees the possibility for the United States troops to move in and help them. Um, Mm -hmm. that being said, of course, if it's an election thing, it'd be very useless for the United States to say, we're just going to move our troops somewhere else. That
2: obviously, it, it, it it highlights, I think it also highlights, um, a very similar point to what the, the, the bounty story highlights is that Trump is not only is he soft on Putin and soft on Russia, but there's a, a a good deal of things that he's acquiesced to Russia Mm -hmm. on. You know, Russia wants this base to be gone. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that can't happen overnight. Uh-huh. So the next best thing is to reduce its occupational um, – not occupational. Its, its ability to provide a sort of uh, – but I think – and I think it's, it's dangerous too because it's so, so strategically located for the U.S., I mean, that's the stopover point for U.S. forces in Iraq and Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. It's presumably where the U.S. and NATO allies would stage and amass their troops for a conflict with Russia and with, Mm -hmm. you know, like a a sort of a redux of the Cold War. Um, You know, the U.S. has no presence in Africa. I think there's one official base in Djibouti, and that's Mm -hmm. about it. I mean, there are reported to be dozens of sort of covert ah, that's true. Very, there
0: are other secret bases in the Sahel, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah.
2: just nuts. Um, but if it's sort of, you know, the U.S. has no opening to Africa. Mm-hmm. I think to your point, Dale, mm. about painting this as an election thing, I, I push back on that a little bit because when politicians talk about bringing the troops home, it's more so done, you know, bringing them home from danger, bringing them home from Afghanistan or Iraq. Or you know, multilateral, well, Syria. That's sure. yeah. Syria. Yeah, Syria's exactly. Yeah. I mean, yeah. There's certainly. I think what, how it can be spun. I think you're you're right more broadly that it can be spun for an election piece. Yeah, of course. Um, but I think the president will try and spin it for his reelection as um, America first. In terms of we of need course. to focus. You know, we're sending mm. not only troops, but we're sending money to Germany. You know, yeah. your yeah. tax dollars are leaving the country. The Democrats want to take your paycheck and give it to a German, you know, janitor who cleans, you know, the the floor of of Mm -hmm. the base. So I I think, I think it's seen more so in terms of that instead of the like rah rah victory bringing the boys home.
1: No, that definitely makes a lot of sense.
0: One thing to remember as well is what the Ramstein base is, and it is, of course, uh, um, an Air Force base. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I believe it's the largest. A drone operations base in the world. Yep. So all of the drones that Barack Obama, for example, sent over during his escalation in the Middle East were from Ramstein. Um, and I think it also shows, yeah, kind of a, a moving away from how Trump and I think some of the U.S. military as well want to position their bases. Drones were very useful and effective. Um, But they have come under significant fire, I think, domestically as well in the US, Mm -hmm. their use of them. Um, The fact that they are actually almost illegal in some respects (laughs) um, with how they use it uh, with automatic uh, triggering. And I think that's also a view, a viewpoint of it. Um, It's them kind of moving away from that a little bit. Um, And one thing to mention as well is the fact that they're not the only ones. Uh, Last year, the British finally pulled out all of their troops from germany we've had a um, troop stationed in germany since well 1945 after the during the occupation and last year we pulled out the troops as well so it could also be seen in that context yeah as just a continuation of that i don't think it is uh but these are things i think the military the u.s officials themselves discussing this are going to be thinking right, a where do we want these troops to? the troops aren't being fired
1: no like they're not
0: they are, they're not no longer part of the U.S. military. They'll be put somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, and the question is really, yeah, does this show a larger viewpoint of how the U.S. military is being remade? We know that there are significant happenings now with the U.S. restructuring lot of their divisions. Mm-hmm. Is this just a part of it? Um, if it is, then I think we can all say it was a, either badly timed and or badly communicated, and probably both. Um, But I think there are also actual strategic reasons for it to do so.
2: I think, um, yeah, I think on those strategic reasons, I think you would see a base under normal circumstances. I think you would see the base closure or, you know, it might indicate reduction, reduction or well, reduction and then eventual closure um, for, you know, as a maybe a harbinger of the winding down of, of U.S. involvement in Afghanistan and Iraq. Because in addition to to being a drone operations base, um, if I'm not mistaken, that air force base has the largest hospital, the largest like military hospital outside of the U.S. Uh, yes, uh,
0: when when the troops were uh, during the Iraq invasion, right? Yeah. The troops. The first stage where they got back was Ramstein.
2: Treatment in Germany because it's the closest. Yeah. Uh, it's the closest facility and the U.S. No longer maintains its hospital ships for war. Uh, but nor are they going to invest yep. in you know state of the art medical facilities in whichever conflict zone. So it's a t- it's a t- I think it's a related tangent of a reduction in staff. Could it be a sign of of u s. sort of pulling, as you were saying, Dale, pulling out troops from actual combat zones?
1: Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, that's true. that's true. But I think we'll see further. Um, any final comments uh, you want to make, Dale or Jack?
1: Um, I think I'm OK over here. Just I think we've discussed it pretty soon. No, it's an interesting one. I yeah. think,
0: yeah, I, I know that um, I was watching uh, Jens Stoltenberg, the NATO sec gen, um, mm-hmm. in one of his interviews recently, and he was questioned about it. And I think the only real problem with it, because, yes, it has all these factors politically, et cetera, was the fact that it was so sudden and it was not discussed these things are usually
1: yeah at least
0: mentioned in less of an aggressive context but of course it was out of the blue yeah. i don't know whether the tweet came first or the policy came first but i wouldn't be surprised
1: there's past german ambassadors who've claimed that they don't they don't see this Uh, sorry, U.S. U.S. ambassadors to to Germany. To Germany, yeah. Um, John Colburn was quoted saying, "It's just U.S. is big on making announcements; likely won't act on it." And he really doesn't see it as something that's going to follow through. Yeah. But it's really Um, important to look into is if it was a threat to be made, right?
0: Yeah, definitely. And like Jack said for the previous one, uh, for this previous topic on the Russian Taliban, Mm -hmm. um, it's just a loss of trust. It's just a little bit more of chipping away, um, Mm -hmm. on those sort of ties between Europe and the US, which, no matter how flawed they might be, are still some of the strongest and most important ties in the world. Mm
2: -hmm. Um,
0: And uh, yes, we hope those are the
2: same. I think my my final comment would be that this is, it's just another feather in the cap of, you know, American isolationism and, you know, this concerning trend. I don't need to, I think in the last episode I listed everything that the US has withdrawn from. At least the last episode I was involved in. But I think it's just, it's another... You know, it's another thing. And and going to your point about chipping away at the ties between America and Europe, um, you kind of have to think like an egomaniac when you think about how policy is conducted. I think Trump wants to alienate the Mm -hmm. uh, Europeans as much as possible. So they're the ones to walk away and that they're the ones to Mm. sort of give slack on the relationship so that he can turn around and say, well, it wasn't me. It was the Europeans. (laughs) Uh, Maybe he's already doing some of that. It's an
1: unhealthy relationship.
2: He's
0: trying to he's trying to gas are you saying he's trying to gaslight Europe? Yeah. Yeah. It's mind so games. Trump is gaslighting Europe. I, I like that. I want an article on that <laughs> titled Trump Gaslighting. Trump is Europe. gaslighting
2: the world. I, I think there's true. there's more. That's,
0: Trump yeah he is, yeah, that's true. Um I'm not sure if gaslighting features into this the next one, but maybe it does. Um so now we move to Paris, France. where after a pretty devastating um, although somewhat predictable, round of local elections. The prime minister, Edouard Philippe, um, resigned slash was fired um, and has been replaced by a new prime minister called Jean Castex. Now, there's a lot in the background of this. And I'm going to start with the fact that Macron, like almost every French president, is rather unpopular. But his prime minister was very popular for his response. This is rare, as the system created by the Fifth Republic, by um, Charles de Gaulle, and then kind of remodelled by Jacques Chirac, very much made the prime minister kind of the shield for the president. So the prime minister was usually a lot more unpopular. They ran the day to day. They were blamed for things, etc. And then at a whim, they could be fired. In fact, out of all of the presidents um, who have been part of the Fifth Republic, only one has stuck with a single prime minister throughout the whole time. And that is Nicolas Sarkozy with a François Fillon, who is now under investigation for very serious um, uh, matters relating to paying his wife. Um, but nevertheless, it's quite common, usually for the prime minister to be unpopular, something goes wrong, fire him and move on. And in many cases, this seems similar. However, as I said, Philippe, Edouard Philippe, was very popular and the only real success... In the local elections, was Edouard Philippe maintaining his mayoral race in Le Havre? So you can retain multiple posts in France; it's not like other countries where it needs to be won. This was actually the only kind of major city the French uh, retained, and so so the the sorry LREM retained, um, having lost many other cities to the Greens, um, a couple to the Le Republican as well, and so it's quite an interesting move. By Macron, It was expected that a shuffle would happen, um, but to make such a shuffle and to nominate such an unknown, Jean Castex was not a very well-known civil servant beforehand, is quite a power move that suggests that Macron is maybe a little overconfident in how much he believes people like him, um, because there's a strong possibility this could come back to bite him, because Edouard Philippe being a former Republican, and with the Republicans doing... Better out of the old parties, obviously nowhere near as good as some of the other parties. There's a possibility he'd come back as a leadership challenger, and uh, that's one that everyone's going to put putting their, their eyes on, really. Jean Castex himself, as I mentioned, not very well known uh, from the south of France. His main motivation now, and kind of the reason he was nominated, he was Monsieur de Confinement, so he ran the opening up of France, which has been seen as rather a success for the French. Um and he has worked for a long time in the uh, Ilysi, the the palace. He worked with Nicolas Sarkozy, which is one of the reasons he wasn't favoured earlier, Um and so it's interesting to see such a man in a role, and I think Macron definitely sees him as filling in the gaps in Edouard Philippe's personality. Edouard Philippe, being a very single-sided person, didn't reach across the bench very much, uh, where the Castex is a lot more of a – he gets things done, really. Um, So yeah, it's an interesting change and one that is definitely going to have ramifications on on French politics Yeah, Jack, go ahead
2: Yeah, so I uh, every time I speak with you I understand French politics a little bit more and at the same time I understand it a little bit less Um, My understanding of everything is that Macron is a
0: That is French politics for (laughs) you
2: (laughs) Any politics I'm sure, Uh, but one of the one of the uh, issues with sort of the way Europe stands now is, is Macron is sort of the last of a left and most, uh, not left and most, but sort of a more left government as opposed to, you know, the Poles and the Italians and, and sort of more far right people. So what does this sort of shake up of staffing mean for not only Macron's own you kind of referenced this a little bit, but his own political ambitions and his own political career, but also just the overall general direction of mm-hmm. uh, France.
0: That's a very good point. So I would say that one of the reasons Macron has been so unpopular recently for the public um, is because of his slow shift to the right. Um, and I think many now do see him as a center-right candidate. Interesting. Um, that Indeed, because they were always going to be the harder voters to convince to mm-hmm. vote for a centrist party and especially with uh the economy he's been quite uh right and with some of his comments as well i think he's been portrayed as that but castex is and only resign. he only resigned from the republicans last week to okay. become prime that's minister. that's a fast turn right. okay
1: <laughs> that is indeed
0: i mean Edouard philippe did the same when he joined the lrem um of the elections but still he is very much a, also a center-right character castex firmly whereas Edouard philippe definitely was, I think, one of the few true converts in the uh, party. He was there from the beginning. He was very much a centrist. He very much tried to work with both sides. Um, and you could almost see him carrying the expectations of a République en Marche better than Macron. Right. So this has kind of solidified a centre-right shift. It really does remain to be seen. Um, Castel is, sorry, Castex is a very good civil servant in the sense that he's not yeah. too open about it. As I said, one of his main features is the fact that he works across the aisles very well.
2: Now, is this is this um, sort of slow, as you referenced, this slow march into center-rightism that Macron and his administration has demonstrated, is that going to kind of come back to bite him during whenever the next round of, of general elections for the far left or even the center-left? You know, is he at least maybe maybe not the i'm sure there are people that he knows he'll never convince way out on both the far right and the far left but some of those more mm. center left uh people and parties and positions maybe that voted for him initially um mm-hmm. you know is 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 there something that's going to fill that vacuum i guess is is my my question
0: yes yes there is but no one quite knows what yet what's interesting to see and this is also important to know a little bit of sort of the the wider idea, is the main competitor to Macron was, of course, the um, the nationalists, mm-hmm. uh, the far right yeah. in that sense. And they fared quite badly in the local elections, to everyone's surprise. Everyone was certain that they would triumph over LREM and suddenly um, Marie would become the, the most favoured. But no, they did quite badly. The Greens, for example, had one of their biggest surges in their history. Good for them. And possible it's possible they might even mirror some of the accomplishments by the uh, the Germans and the Austrians and maybe they will become one of the new sort of sort of center left groups that's way too early to tell but if there's one party i say that could i would say it's the greens between the republicans and the socialists the old parties the socialists aren't looking like they have rebuilt properly yet Whereas the Republicans, they've had a recent uh, leadership election. I believe they have a new leader. Um, they didn't do fantastic in the local elections. They weren't expecting to, but they did better than they expected. Um, their candidate did very well in the mayoral elections in Paris, way better than expected as well, hmm. as did the Greens. Um, so potentially the Greens could come in to fill that gap. Um, but the socialists have a longer history. They have a bigger base. It's... French politics, honestly, at any moment, it can it can definitely change. <laughs> do,
2: quite do, quickly. do the parties break down by age? Are you seeing maybe as, you know, more young people are becoming, I mean, because here in America, you can yeah, see definitely. sort of an age divide between our parties. Is it one of those, you know, a lot of these, like the Greens are seeing success because more young people are getting involved or older people are dying? Yeah. You know, is it <laughs> I mean, a little macabre, but yeah. is it, is it sort of? reflective of that or is it really more of an ideology i would fight? say that
0: what's interesting is every single party is fighting for the young vote okay every single party
2: that's pretty standard but, i think in it's politics pretty standard in
0: but right from the spectrum the far right for example um had a very promising young candidate uh ron i believe he did lose his election actually uh, but they were very much looking for the the young yeah. uh the out of touch the Republicans have always relied on a very active young base. The socialists, without a saying as well, um, and of course LREM. I think LREM maybe less so just because they really had to, their benefit was catching all of the out-of-touch voters from both sides. Mm. Um, but I do not have the data in front of me. And that data would be very hard to come across in France. But I wouldn't be surprised if the reason the Greens did so well is because the young vote. But then again, do you remember the Gilets Jaunes
2: strikes mm-hmm. as yeah.
0: well? The constant uh, strikes um, that France isn't doing enough. Yeah.
2: Um,
0: environment is definitely high on the list of priorities in France, more so than other countries. Okay. Um, in a way that I think permeates older groups and their voting habits more than other countries. Okay. Um, So I wouldn't say that it's easy to break down by age, but I would say that it's just a matter of getting the right topics. And maybe some of the topics are sort of more age related. But I wouldn't be surprised if the Greens were also propelled by a significantly middle aged group as well. The French don't vote for the same party every time. They love changing the vote all the time. Local elections is also a very useful one to do that. So we can't. Extrapolate local elections. To, yeah,
2: that's that. That's just yeah, tough for me to election. wrap my head around voting yeah. for different parties every time.
0: Of course, yeah, there are, there are quite a few. I mean, at least it's better than in Germany, where yeah, the multi parties. the The one thing is, of course, in France, the president is so supreme; the right. parties barely matter. Um,
2: yes, that's a good that's, check on on the is. system,
0: and that's a good link back to the how the prime minister works as well. The prime minister again is just that shield. Against the bulwark of uh, public opinion, allowing the president to do what, literally whatever he wants, um, for that matter. It's somewhat crazy. You think the American president is a lot of power, but there is at least a, a division. There's barely one in France. Hmm. Um, so, yes. Anything, any questions, Dale? Um, you wanna...
1: I, I think, like Jack, I am learning a lot about French politics right now. Um, yeah, I, I definitely think it's. The, the concept of, of earning new votes based on topics every year rather than, than isolating specific demographics as we see in the United States and even in Canadian politics is definitely not something I, s- I have a lot of experience with. But um, mm-hmm. I can see how that would make a, a big difference in, in campaigns and such.
0: Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And I guess in terms of other figures, like um, the mayor of Paris winning as well, and Hidalgo, um, who was a very controversial figure but she's still, I think, one of the strongest politicians in France. Mm. Paris has always been a place that prime ministers and presidents have launched from, so that is also a potential competitor. If the socialists were to come back, it would definitely be because of her, and almost solely her. Mm. Um, So, yeah, we'll definitely see. I would say to have gone beyond the politics of the president of France is rare. So if you're feeling confused, listeners, or indeed Dale and Jack, about (laughs) the role of the prime minister... It's very common. It's very common to be quite confused about that um, because, yeah, it's it gets into aspects of politics that are just quite shady.
2: <laughs> so, so Macron pretty much has no direct say over who he wants as. Oh, he
0: does. Yes. He does. He would.
2: Okay, so it's like a Guess, president, what vice president he does, thing. Oh,
0: okay. Yeah, exactly. What oh, he okay. does is he has nominated the prime. So he nominates the prime minister. Prime minister. Creates the government, however, only in collaboration with. Well, I'm not sure if officially the president has a veto under the constitution or whatever. But if the president (laughs) does not like the person in government, he will find a way to remove him, no doubt or her. I
2: I was I was under the impression it was well the people have spoken. If you don't like each other, go into that room and don't come out until Mm. (laughs) you like (laughs) each other. No,
0: the the president does have a very outsized power in France. Okay, okay, Um, again, which is one of the reasons why I think a lot of people see him as losing touch with the people. They see him as uh, Jupiter, that's his, uh, his moniker, oh, all up on high, Mount Olympus and just not really talking to the people. Um, and they have punished him so. Yeah. They punished him so in the locals. Will that matter in the long run? Probably not. But will that give parties a base to go from? Definitely. And so all we can say here is don't count the others out. Right. Um, the Greens was a shock. It's not very often that these sort of. Swings happen, especially as in the first round, there was no sign of this. Um, the second round, of course, being delayed because of coronavirus. So, yeah, it's going to be very interesting to see in the future. I believe Jean Castex is a very good pick. I think he's uh, a very neutral, uh, a good person to work with. If anything, I think he might be too good. Um, one of the reasons I think Macron chose such a low level character is so that he won't have time to become popular again because if he chose another character who's well-known, there will be the other possibility of repeating what happened with Edouard Philippe. Okay. So it's a gamble. Macron loves gambles. I mean, his entire party and political existence is a gamble. So we'll see where he goes with this. So, yeah. Um, yeah, any final thoughts you guys want to make uh, on the other topics either? Or... I think we'll leave it there for the Okay. Day. okay. Sounds well,
2: good.
0: All that's left is a uh, thank you very much, Jack. Thank you very much, Dale, for joining.
2: Of course. Yeah, thanks Thanks for having me. Yeah, it was a pleasure.
0: Yeah, so that concludes our episode for today. Thank you very much all for listening. Uh, please do join us next edition, where we will be talking about Central and Southeast Europe. Um, so we're going to focus quite a on the politics of those regions. Um, otherwise, all that's left is to say um, thank you for listening. Please do follow us on all our social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, etc. And have a wonderful week. Goodbye.